0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to lliw.net to register. At the end of today's service, we're going to view some pictures. Some pictures of some very precious people. People who were members of our community of faith here at Loma Linda University Church. This past Monday was Memorial Day. Memorial Day is the holiday that we here in America celebrate as a day in remembrance of those who have given their lives in service to our country. Every year at LLUC, the Sabbath at the end of Memorial Day week, we have an in-memory segment in our program. It's a time when we show the pictures of those who have gone to their rest in Jesus in the preceding year. Precious pictures. Precious pictures. I have no question but that as you view those pictures, you'll feel a lump in your throat, stab in your heart, a tear on your cheek, because it will bring back memories and it will bring back grief. It was the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow who maybe put it best when he said, Into every life some rain must fall. So rain showers, in fact, rain storms, have blown into many lives in recent days. And because of that, we've been in a series of sermons entitled simply, When. When life doesn't turn out the way you think it should, then what? And today our question is about the end of the journey. When the journey ends, then what? Many of you have had that experience. Some of you are in the middle of that experience right now. You know what it's like. A family is gathered in the room of a loved one. Family members are taking turns leaning against the door, leaning hard against the door, leaning against the door, because on the outside of that door, death is trying to shove his way into the room. But there comes a moment, weariness, an unguarded moment. Death succeeds, shoves his way into the room, And the journey ends. And the family now gathers in a rain shower, soaking wet. Into every life some rain must fall, said Longfellow. So that's what we seek to deal with today. What happens, then what, when the journey ends? You know how our culture tends to do that, don't you? One author writes about it, drawing on the work of John James and Frank Cherry, who've worked much in the area of grief management, grief and loss, grief recovery. This author draws on them and and tries to get us to think about what it might look like in the life of Johnny. Johnny's a five-year-old boy, has a dog named Spot that he loves. But you know what it's like. Family lives near a busy street. Someone leaves the gate open. Spot gets out. And Dad has to break the tragic news to Johnny. Johnny begins to weep and to wail, and Dad says to him, Johnny, don't cry. We'll get you another dog on Monday. Without, no doubt, realizing it, Dad has just set the course for the way Johnny is to deal with grief throughout his life. Bury your feelings. Replace your losses. Johnny continues to grow. He's in high school now. Now he wants to be called John. So John finds a girl. She's a beautiful freshman girl, falls in love with her, falls hard. But she reciprocates. Everything is coming up roses. The sun is shining. The birds are singing all the way to the day when she crushes his heart by unceremoniously dumping him. Again, Johnny's crushed. The tears flow until his mom steps in and says, Johnny, don't don't cry. There are other fish in the sea. And that original message gets underlined. Bear your losses, bear your feelings, replace your losses. John continues, senior in high school. One day the principal slips into the room, puts a note on his desk. He opens the note only to discover that his grandfather has died. He begins to weep at his desk. The teacher ushers him out into a room where he can be alone. His dad picks him up, takes him home. They walk in. Mom is sitting over there in the living room. She's sitting over there weeping about the loss of her father. Johnny starts that way, but dad says, John, John, leave her alone right now. You can talk to her later. So John goes down to his room, sits down feeling as alone as he ever has. His granddad, that's the one he fished with every summer. The one he hung out with, the one he talked sports with. And now Johnny learns the third lesson of grief grieve alone. So just think about Johnny, John, and his life and how it has unfolded. Think about the simple ways in which our culture's way of facing the reality of when the journey ends and the messages that get communicated. Hide your feelings. Replace your losses. Grieve alone. But we today have to ask ourselves the question, is that the best way? Is that the direction we should go? In fact, as disciples of Jesus, isn't there a better way? A different route. When the journey ends, then what? So today we turn to the writings of the Apostle Paul. We turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1. We're going to read in this section about a profoundly difficult time, a profoundly sorrowful time that Paul has experienced. It's not just Paul, by the way, it's also Timothy, because in the opening verse of the epistle, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, Paul is writing about something he has experienced, but something Timothy has experienced as well, profoundly difficult. And yet, in that difficulty, Paul found a way through. Now, what Paul writes here does not specifically have to do with death. It deals with challenges much larger and much broader than just one. But death does enter the picture in terms of how Paul felt. It was such a crushing burden. I want to suggest to you that in the section, the passage that we'll read today, Paul is making two basic statements. The first statement we're going to read that Paul is making is simply this. I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can make it. Have you said those words? Have you felt those feelings? Have you hit that wall? I don't think I can make it, not through this. Well, listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 8. <clears throat> he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Did you listen to what Paul said there? I don't think I can make it. In fact, did you catch the words of verse 8? Just again to underline what he says. He says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. I don't think I can make it, Timothy. I don't think I can make it, Paul. And then he pushes it one step further in verse 9. We felt like we were under the sentence of death. Make no mistake about it. If you're feeling today like you can't make it, the pain is too deep, the challenge is too big, the future is too uncertain, if you find yourself saying, I don't think I can make it, squeeze in beside Paul and Timothy. That's where they were as well. In fact, New Testament scholar David Garland helps us understand the the reality of what Paul is saying here in this passage with these words. These are Garland's words. The picture one gets from reading between the lines is that Paul has been exposed to so much suffering that he looks like death. His mission seemed to be filled with nothing but mishap. Where was the evidence of God's power? For some who evaluated him from a worldly perspective, Paul's unending suffering cast doubt on his apostolic power and the shame that some attached to this travail subverted his authority in the church. He had suffered so much, says Garland, that he looked like death. No wonder he's saying, I don't think I can make it. Have you been to that place? Are you at that place now? Over the years, I've quoted any number of times from the Christian writer Philip Yancey i have appreciated deeply his writing. I want to read you about an instance, about someone, about a whole town, actually, who felt what Paul felt. Yancey writes, Shortly after Christmas 2012, I addressed the New England town of Newtown, Connecticut, a community reeling from the murder of 20 schoolchildren and six teachers and staff just days prior. An ambulance driver captured the mood in Newtown well. All of us on the fire and ambulance corps are volunteers, he told me. We don't train for something like this. Nobody does. And my wife is a teacher at Sandy Hook. She knew all 20 children by name as well as the staff. After hiding out during the carnage, she had to walk past the bodies of her colleagues in the hallway. He paused to control his voice, then continued, Everyone experiences grief. Usually, though, you bear grief as if in a bubble. You go to the grocery store. You go back to work. Eventually, that outer world takes over more of you and the grief begins to shrink, the ambulance driver saying that's how it often happens. But now back to his town. Here in Newtown, however, we go to the store and see memorials to the victims. We walk down the street and see markers on the porches of those who lost a child. It's like a bell jar has been placed over the town with all the oxygen pumped out. We can't breathe for the grief. We can't breathe for the grief. It's suffocating us. Sound familiar? It ought to, at least in this context, with Paul saying, Timothy, I don't think I can make it. That's the kind of challenge he faced. Have you been there? Are you there right now? When the journey ends, it can create that very experience. A loved one dies. You receive news that your diagnosis is not only clearly confirmed, but there is no further treatment. And you're facing the end of the journey. Then what? That's where Paul was. We feel like we're under the sentence of death, he says. But if you were following the reading, if you were following the full paragraph of what Paul says, you're probably right about now saying to me, but Randy, that paragraph ends in a good place. He actually comes to the place of saying, this has served to deepen my faith in God. Because of your prayers, we feel gripped by the power of God's grace. So it seems to me the question is obvious. How in the world did Paul get from that first part, under the sentence of death, to that last part? We're gripped in the fist of God's grace. How did he do that? What happened? Well, that's the second thing. The second statement that I think Paul is making. But before we get to that, before we read that part of the passage, I have to remind you of something about Paul. You remember Johnny? The lessons that Johnny learned about grief from a societal, from a cultural perspective? Bury the pain, replace the losses, grieve alone. That was not Paul. If you've read any of Paul, you know that. As you read the Pauline epistles in the New Testament, you come face to face with, a, with an apostle, with a man, with a gentleman who lives his life in the open. He's clear about what he faces. He's clear about what he feels. In fact, sometimes his statements are so poignant that they call forth the emotion within us of sympathy, of empathy, a desire to support him. This passage is an example. For someone who buries the pain and replaces the losses and grieves alone, they would never write a paragraph like he's just written, describing his difficulty, his challenge, his suffering, to the degree that he's saying, I don't think I can make it. Paul, no, he's open and clear in how he lives his life. And that opens the door for us. First thing we would have to say then, if we're going to deal with the mourning, the sorrow, the grief that comes when the journey ends, one of the best ways to do it is to be open about it, to share with others. Because Paul's openness, Paul's sharing with others, opened the door to the second reality in this passage, and that is the comfort of God. The comfort of God. It was the comfort of God that got Paul through. We're going to read about the comfort of God. It's actually in the section of the passage that comes just before what we've read. Now, I have to warn you, as we read this passage, you're going to hear the word comfort over and over and over again. In fact, you're going to hear it so many times, it almost becomes like a tongue twister. You have to be careful to sort through exactly what Paul is saying. In the original, either in the noun or in the verb form, the word comfort appears in these five verses ten times. I don't think we have any question what Paul is talking about. I don't think there's any question as to what he's trying to underline. The comfort of God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this time we start in verse 3. He's just beginning the epistle. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. I love the way Paul begins this passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the names that he uses for God. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Some versions say the Father of mercies. It's the only place God is called that in Scripture. The Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Is your heart broken today? God wants to comfort you. Does your journey feel like it's ending today? God wants to walk with you. Have you come to the end of the journey with a family member, a friend? God offers you his mercy. It is woven all through these verses. But I want you to notice something else, something specific. It's found in verse 4 here. Something that we can't afford to miss. Yes, God wants to comfort you. Yes, God wants to extend to you His mercy. Yes, God wants you to sense, to feel, to experience His compassion. Yes, that's all true. But, but, there's more than just your comfort at stake. Because remember what he said in verse 4 about the God of compassion, the Father of mercies, who comforts us in all our troubles, troubles so that we can comfort others. So that we can comfort others. As much as God wants to heal your hurt, he wants your hurt to be healed so that then you can reach out to someone else to help heal their hurt. There is this interweaving, this intermingling of comfort between people in the body of Christ. This is one of those one anothering passages that appear so frequently in the New Testament. Love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, and the list could go on. And in this context, you're supposed to comfort one another with the comfort that you have received from God. So I think what Paul is saying here, his first statement was, I don't think I can make it. His second statement is, when I don't think I can make it, I find the comfort of God in Christian community. When I don't think I can make it, I find the comfort of God in Christian community. Now, I can almost hear you asking me the question. It's the obvious question to ask at a point like this. It's the question, how? Okay, Randy, if if you're saying that Paul is saying that we can find the comfort of God in Christian community, how do we find that? How do we comfort one another? When the journey ends, when we seek to reach out to somebody who's mourning, how do we do that? Well, let me begin with just a couple of words about how not to do it. Maybe that's a good place to start. How not to do it. How not to comfort a grieving friend. Don't minimize the loss. It wasn't that bad. It'll be better tomorrow. Don't minimize. Don't lecture. Well, you see, this is what God wants to do with you, and this is don't lecture. Don't tell them, Things that minimize that lecture or that take away their pain. Those are the don'ts. I remember a a young woman, a young mother in a grief recovery group who shared about the death of her infant, her baby. She was crushed, devastated. A little while after that, she went back to her church looking for maybe some Christian comfort, Christian community like we're talking about here. She told our group that evening that while she was there, one of the dear sisters in the church reached out to her to give her some comfort and made this statement to her about her baby that had died. She said to this young mother, God just picked another flower for his bouquet. Okay, let me state the obvious. Don't do that. Do not do that. In fact, when that dear sister said that to that young mother, that young mother kindly replied to her, well, then why didn't he pluck yours? (laughs) I doubt that sister said that again. Don't lecture. Don't draw lessons from it. Don't minimize the pain. Don't do any of that. So then you say, okay, fine. I I won't do that. But what exactly am I supposed to do? How can we share the comfort of God in Christian community? Well, I love an approach I ran across years ago by Doug Manning, who's written some on grief. Doug Manning developed what he called the 3-H approach. You've heard of 4-H clubs? This is the 3-H approach to grief. Hang around, hug them, and hush. Hang around, be present, hug them, assure them of your love, and hush. Let them talk." I think an excellent, excellent example of that 3-H approach comes in the words of the late Joseph Bailey, an author and publishing executive who's done much writing on biblical themes. Listen to what Bailey wrote years ago about when the journey ends. "'I was sitting,' writes Bailey, "'torn by my grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Christian community, right there. The 3-H approach, hang around, hug them, and hush. Paul is saying when it feels like you can't make it, you can find the comfort of God in true Christian community. Do it the way God did it. So how did God do it? How did he do it in the life of Paul, in the lives of other biblical personalities? Well, you know the story. A baby was born in a manger. He became a teacher that walked the dusty pathways of Galilee. There was no great fanfare. There were no great lectures in the sense that we think of lectures. There was no condemnation. There was no minimizing of feelings. Instead, there was someone who walked with the lonely, who talked to the marginalized, who healed the hurting, who dried their tears. There was one who came and who just before he left said to his huddled group of fearful followers, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I will send you A comforter to be with you forever. You will not be alone. And that same comforter hovers over you, huddles within Christian community, still offering the comfort of God. It's true. That comforter often comes and goes unnoticed, like Jesus said, like the wind that whistles in and then wafts out. But the comforter is there. You may not fully recognize the comforter's presence until somehow, a bit mysteriously, you feel comfort in your soul. That's the way Jesus did it, the way God does it. And that comfort spreads as life touches life, as heart aligns with heart, as hands clasp, as people come together in Christ. I think that the story of Damien Spike Wright, I want to share it with you in his words Damien writes, When I was in high school, my father passed away rather suddenly. It was just two days before my high school graduation. (laughs) What a time. At that time in my life, I was a baby Christian, immature and shallow. I was still drying off the baptistry waters. All I cared about was not going to hell. But then my dad died. I found myself in a place I'd never been before. I wanted to hear God speak. I wanted to know what he had to say about this situation, how he was going to get me and my family through this difficult time. You can hear his question, right? When the journey ends, then what? That's what he's asking. So I prayed, says Damien, and I waited for God to speak. Then came the day of the funeral. The church was packed. I sat on the front pew with my mother and two younger sisters. The Lutheran priest spoke but I don't remember what he said. I continued to wait for God to say something. Then the service was over. It was the tradition of this church to have the family line up in the foyer. Everyone would file past us and offer words of condolence and encouragement. Tears were shed, hugs offered, and words were given. I don't remember what anybody said to me at that time, but I continued to wait for God to speak. Then I saw Kim O'Quinn. Kim was my age. We were in the youth group together. When she got to me, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes. And she simply hugged me and walked off. But I heard God speak. It dawned on me. Just months before I had attended another funeral, the funeral for Kim O'Quinn's father. In that moment, she knew exactly what it meant to be me. If you want to hear God's voice in your life, says Damien, look no further than the one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it is to be human, He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to suffer. If you want to hear God's voice speak, allow your soul to be quieted long enough so that you can hear the one who was in the beginning say to you, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. That's the way Jesus comforts. So when the journey ends, then what? Are you at a place where you are feeling that, experiencing that, going through that right now? Are you at a place where you're saying, I can't do this, I can't get through this any longer? Then I would encourage you to listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians 1, listen to what Paul says. Because Paul is saying, When you get to the place where you say, I can't do it any longer, God offers you his comfort in Christian communities.